All right, what's up, Traders Point family? How we doing? Good to see you. And uh, we are one church gathering in multiple locations. So I want to say hello to everyone at our North Campus, uh, downtown West. Anybody watching online, I know we have a number of people hosting watch parties around the country. Welcome. Uh, those of you here at Northwest, really good to see you. If you have a uh, Bible or a Bible app, and I hope you have access to one, would you please uh, get to uh, the Old Testament book of 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings 17, uh, that's the story we're going to walk through here in a few moments. But let me kind of set the table for us. Uh, if you're just now joining us, if you're a guest today, we've been in this series called Six words that can change your life. And really the big idea behind it is that we, we know that like, like a word like can't in and of itself change our lives. But we know that an ordinary word like the ones we've been walking through can help us make some space for God to come in and to speak and to work and to do in our lives what only he can and so on week number one, we looked at this word called wow. Uh, then we looked at sorry. Last week, we looked at no. And I have had so many people say no to me this last week. Um, you guys are just enthusiastically applying that message to your life. It's so great. I was on an airplane coming back from Dallas this last week. And this guy walked by and he looked at me and he goes, no. And I was like, Trader's Point. He's like, yeah. And so uh, uh, today I want to look at this elusive word, though, right here, um, enough. And there's a number of ways in which we could work that word into a set of questions that we're all asking in our lives. Like there's a number of ways that I've asked this question of myself. Like, uh, you know, am I enough? And is this enough? And how much is enough? Like, how, how do you know? Uh, there was a uh, researcher from Stanford that was asking people uh, in Europe uh, this question, like, how do you know when you've had enough? And, and it was basically asking that question uh, through the lens of like, how do you know how, how much food you need to eat? And people in Paris, this was their number one response. They said, I know I've had enough when I feel full. Like when I feel full, I feel like I've had enough, I stop eating. When he asked the same question to people in America, different answer, all right? And it was a variation of one of these three. Uh, I stop when the food is gone, when my plate is empty, or this is my favorite, when the Netflix show that I'm watching while eating is over, then I know that I've had enough. Kind of reminds me of the very first goldfish that I ever owned. The poor fella ate himself to death because he didn't know when he had had enough. Like I dumped the whole box of fish food into the bowl not because I was on vacation, but because I just thought, he'll ration it out, right? He'll know. He, he didn't know. He just ate until <laughs> he died, all right? Uh, when my son was six years old, I, he went with me out to California because uh, I was preaching at a church out there, and we ate dinner at a restaurant called Claim Jumper. I don't know if any of you have ever visited one of these establishments. They have them out west. They serve ginormous portions of food. And when we got done eating, he wanted dessert, and so I said, do you want to share something? And he goes, no, like I want my own. And so they brought out this brownie and I'm, I'm not even exaggerating. It was bigger than his head. And it was, it was ice cream and whipped cream and chocolate sauce and all that. And he digs into this thing. And when he finished, I snapped a picture of him. I want to show it to you. <clears throat> you know, your soul can look like that too. And I think all of us, in one way or another, we have fallen into this trap of chasing after and pursuing 
what we think will be enough in our lives. I know that I have. And so what ends up happening is that maybe we, we finally get the job or the promotion that we thought would be enough. Like, like once I can get that title in front of my name, then I'll feel like I've arrived, I'll feel successful. And then you get it and then there's like something nagging at you, it's missing. Like we, we know we, we're living in the additional square footage, we're driving the nicer car, we're wearing the more expensive clothes, but we're not any happier. And so we've achieved the thing, we've acquired the status, we've, we've accomplished the goal, and yet we're, we're not as happy as we thought we would be or had hoped. And in every possible way, we caught up to, and maybe we even crossed the line of what we had previously thought, well, well, that would be enough. And then we get up to it, and then it's as if somebody cruelly just moved the line out a little further. And we continue to chase it. This is what a guy named Solomon is driving down at in the book that he writes in the Old Testament called Ecclesiastes. And he was one of the most successful people to ever uh, walk the face of the planet. And Solomon would say, listen, I've achieved it all. I've acquired it all. I've been there. I've done that. And I'm actually just telling you that uh, this isn't it. Like I've achieved and accomplished everything that you would think a human being could accomplish and acquire that would be enough and, and, and it just simply isn't. And in fact, he would say it this way in chapter 5, verse 10. He would go, those who love money will never, like never have enough. And I don't know about you, it's easy for, for me to read a statement like that and to give myself an out. And here's why. I read that and I go, well, I don't love money. Like, I don't love it. Like, in fact, if I were to just take a poll and say, you know, show of hands, how many of you love money? I doubt I'm getting too many takers, even if you do love it. Because we all know, like, to, to publicly say you love money kind of makes you sound like a jerk. And so we know, well, I'm not going to say that. But here's the deal. Maybe we don't love it, but maybe we think about it all, all the time. Maybe you're like me. When the balance in my checking account drops below that line that I've established, I'm either okay or unokay. I start to panic and try to take control. It's the same thing. Like I'm leaning against it to actually feel comfortable and at ease and say, okay, now I'm in a position where I can relax. Now I'm in a position where I can actually share some of it. And Solomon says, listen, I've acquired it all. And if you love it, you'll never have enough of it. And research just simply backs up what Solomon said to us thousands of years ago. Researchers asked people this question, uh, like what would be enough? Like, like, what do you need to acquire in order to feel like you had enough? Here was the answer across the board, about 25% more. And it didn't matter your salary. It didn't matter your tax bracket. It didn't matter your square footage. Everybody said this. So if you made $30,000 a year, $50,000, $100,000, or more than $500,000, everybody still said about 25% more. Then I could relax a little bit. Then I would feel like I had some margin but, but, it, but it never is because we ratchet up our lifestyles. We just tack on more and more and more, and it never feels like enough. So can I just be honest with you? Uh, I don't like listening to messages on this topic, let alone preach them. All right? So, and here's why. Because I always like, it's always like that thing where it's like, like, like that sort of guilt thing. Like, like I kind of think I know where this is going. And uh, you're, you're telling me that I shouldn't love money and I shouldn't think about money and I should just trust and all that. And so what do, what, what's the answer here? Uh, to not ever think about it at all? Right? To not ever establish a budget? To, I, I've met some people who say, well, I just, I just hate money. I don't even want to think about it. Is that the answer? And I don't, that, that's not the answer. See, the answer, or maybe if I could phrase it this way, 
the antidote to the never-ending cycle of enough is this exciting little word right here. I know you guys are going to be super excited about it. Contentment. Yeah, all right. One, one person loves it, all right. If you are anything like me, uh, you read that and you're just like, really? Like, that's it? Like, because I don't know, uh, like those of you that are kind of like visionary, goal setter, you know, hustle, like I'm going to achieve the thing, and somebody tells you to just be content, isn't it kind of annoying? Like it kind of feels like a little bit of a wet blanket. Like in other words, for the longest time, when somebody would tell me to be content, I felt like they were, now they weren't saying this, but I felt like they were saying, hey, just settle for a mediocre life. Right, just, just calm down a little bit. Like, it's like, uh, you know, I don't want the generic, I want the real thing. Like, I, I don't want Dr. Zipper, I want Dr. Pepper. I, I don't want Lucky, Char I, I want Lucky Charms, I don't want, you know, Marshmallow, you know, mateys, all right? I, I want to go to Disneyland, not Holiday World, all right? And, and then somebody would look at you and go, well, just be content. And it was just so annoying, and I don't want to do that to you. And in fact, that's not what that word means. It doesn't mean to settle. It doesn't mean to just stop having goals. It doesn't mean to stop achieving. I mean, the Bible even says that a wise person leaves an inheritance for their children's children, which means that you're responsible financially, that you save something. It doesn't need to be a huge amount, but you're, you've been so responsible that you leave a financial blessing not only to your kids, but to your kids' kids. And so, so, what's the, so what does this mean? Here's, here's a better definition of contentment. Is that contentment means to be satisfied and at ease, regardless of your circumstances. And that sounds nice to me. That actually sounds like a, hey, why don't you just take a breath? And, and here, here's the, the opposite of this is when I feel entitled, when the opposite is when I feel prideful. Right after the first service, I was talking to this man down front, and he was just so transparent with me. He says, God's convicted me today because he says, every time I talk to God, I'm asking him for something, and I very rarely stop and thank him. And so this is what contentment does. Contentment starts with gratitude. Contentment starts with, God, I'm so thankful, even though I'm in a set of circumstances in which I'm leaning into you, I'm still satisfied and I'm at ease because, God, like, you're enough, and I know you'll provide enough. And that's difficult for us to get to. We don't come by it naturally. Uh, listen to how Paul describes this in Philippians chapter 4. He's, he's writing to a group of people that were generous with him. And he said, not that I was ever in need, for I have learned. That's the key. He says, listen, this doesn't necessarily come natural. Uh, I have to learn to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing, ramen noodles in the dorm floor, and with, 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 with enough a more square footage in the suburbs. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or with little. So here's the principle that Paul has given to us. You might take out your phone, take a picture of this, write this down, because this is the message in a sentence, is that contentment is the perspective that you choose regardless of the circumstances that you have. And I'm so thankful for that because... Uh, Contentment isn't circumstantial. Aren't you glad for that? Because circumstances, they change all the time, and you have no control over it. So stock markets rise and fall, and transmissions go out, and medical bills come in. And look at your grandparents. Gravity and wrinkles, they win, all right? And so contentment, that, that, did, that didn't go over very well. Those you're like, oh, that hurt, all right? It's true, all right? 
Contentment is found in the perspective that you choose rather than the circumstances that you have. So let's look at our story from 1 Kings chapter 17. We find two individuals in which God is trying to um, help reinforce this in their lives. The first is a guy by the name of Elijah, who is one of the most well-known prophets in the nation of Israel. And look at what goes down in verse 1. It says, Now Elijah, who was from Tishbe in Gilead, told King Ahab, As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, the God that I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. So here's what Elijah is doing. He's picking a fight with King Ahab, and he comes to him and he says, Listen, um, there's going to be a drought that's going to come, and God's going to withhold the rain, and it's going to trigger a massive famine. And the reason for this is because the people have been putting their trust in the false god of Baal, who happens to be the god of rain. And I love this. God's like, hey, are you going to put your trust in the rain? All right, I'll withhold the rain. And I'll, and I'll actually show you that you've been leaning your ladder on the wrong thing. And so this makes the king angry, and Elijah's uh, life is at stake, and God gives him a heads up. Look at verses 2 through 4. Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go to the east and hide by the Kareth brook, near where it enters the, the Jordan River. Drink from the brook and eat what the ravens bring you, for I have commanded them to bring you food. Now, I'm just guessing that Elijah read and reread that email just a few times. He's going, God, like, are you sure about this? Right? Did I understand you correctly? I mean, this is the best plan that you've come up with. I mean, I, so, so I've been obedient to you, and I've, and I've told the king there's going to come a drought, and now you're actually asking me to travel in the opposite direction of the Jordan River, which is the primary source of water during this drought, and you tell me my meals are going to be delivered by the ravens. Just to be clear, he's not talking about the NFL football team, but the actual birds, all right? And the reason why that's so crazy, you've ever heard the expression, eat like a bird? Yeah, they don't eat a whole lot, right? So Elijah's going, is this going to be enough? And you know, sometimes God will ask something of us or he'll put us in a position that does not logically from our perspective seem to make a whole lot of sense. But when we look closer at it, here's what I want you to remember. What, here's what God's doing. He is not being cruel. He's not playing games. He's trying to calibrate your life and mine towards contentment. Let me say that again because the phrasing of that is so important. He's trying to calibrate our lives. Paul said, I've learned to be content. God says, we have to learn to be content. The only way you learn to be content is when you feel like you don't have enough. And you're actually choosing to trust in who God is and what he says. And it doesn't seem as if there's going to be enough water. And so God will oftentimes place these restraints in our lives that don't initially seem to make sense. But he's asking us to trust him. Let me just give you two. One is called the Sabbath. And you probably are familiar with this. You've heard of it. It's basically this is like take one day off a week and just rest. Now, we don't treat this legalistically. In fact, in God's word, it says that God created the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath, meaning that we're not serving it. This is not a legalistic thing. This is actually a principle that is really, really helpful and refreshing, and we need it. 
And so here's, what, here's the calibration towards contentment, is that six days' worth of work is enough. Now, you, could you work all seven days a week, 365 a year? Like, yeah, some of us are. And because of technology and email and instant access, we can just be on all the time. Whether you're at home or at the office, it doesn't really matter. And you're grinding and you're grinding and you're grinding and you're grinding. And that's why we're so burned out and stressed. Because we overlook the principle. Let me give you another one. Uh, The tithe. And the tithe is basically, God, I'm going to trust you with the first 10% of what I earn. I'm just going to acknowledge that it came from you, and I'm trusting you with this. Here's the calibration towards contentment, is that 90% of my income is enough. And I, in fact, I would even say it this way, that God can actually do a better job, a more adequate job of providing for me and my family on 90% of what I earn than what I could control and trying to provide for me and my family with 100%. Does the math work out? No. But, but God actually provides more than enough. And it's actually a trust thing. God, God has asked you to tithe as a Christ follower, not because he needs your money or wants your money, but because he wants your heart. And your heart always follows your treasure. And he says, what are you trusting? And so I want you to learn to be content. And few of us, few of us are doing this. Uh, there's a, a, one, a study called American Generosity. And they said this, that about 84% of Americans give away 0 to 1% of their income. 84% of us like aren't doing this and only 3% of us are giving at the level of a tithe. And by the way, uh, I've read secular financial books and almost all of them have a chapter on tithing and it's usually never connected to a religious thing. It's just that they've said, hey, there's just like this thing that actually teaches you to be generous and actually it's amazing how your business like, it, it gets, is more fruitful and your life is more fruitful when you give 10% away. They're not even talking about God. They've just learned that this actually works and God's actually the originator of it because he knows how this operates. And so in verses, in, in, in verses 5 through 7, Elijah did as the Lord told him and he camped beside the Kareth Brook east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat each morning and evening and he drank from the brook. But after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rainfall anywhere in the land. All right, so let's, let's just review. Okay, God, um, just so we're clear, you've asked Elijah to be obedient and to bring this prophecy against the, 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 the false god of Baal, and he did. And then you sent him uh, to this brook where he could get a drink, and he did. And you promised to make sure that he would have enough. And now that he is here, now that he's been obedient to you, Now the brook is drying up. Isn't that a kick in the teeth? And I'm just wondering if there's anybody here today or listening to this, and maybe you're standing next to the brook, so to speak, and it looks as if it's running dry. And you thought you were trusting God in this area of your life. You said, you know what? Uh, New year, new me, back in January, I'm going to start taking a day off. I'm going to guard it. And you did. And then actually the competition won or you lost your job or you got behind. And you're like, what did that get me? Or some of you are like, I'm going to go ahead and trust God with the tithe. And the very week that you made the decision to do that, the mortgage company sent you a gift in the mail. And it was a letter, and it said, we haven't been withholding enough in your escrow account, and your mortgage payment's going to go up by $150 a month. And by the way, you owe us $1,500. 
And you were like, God, this is the thanks I get for being obedient to you. And some of you right now, you're standing next to a brook that you, that you thought God told you to stand next to. And you're saying, God, I really, really hope that you know what you're doing here because the water level, it's a dropping. And I'm looking around and by my own logic, this doesn't appear to be enough. And it's in those moments that you really find out how much you trust God. And how much you've actually been leaning on the way in which you can control your own circumstances. When my kids were all really little, one of my favorite things to do with them was to just take them and just throw them up into the air. Like we're talking like, you know, lots of space between me and them. And what I loved about it, like in the early, early days, is that they, they had the time of their life. They would laugh and smile and giggle like they would laugh so hard snot would come out of their nose sometimes you know it was just that type of joy now here's the deal they were totally oblivious to the inherent danger that was awaiting them because like if I would have dropped them like you know then it would have been severe injury that they were oblivious to all that they were just having the time of their lives because they just trusted me but then things began to change as they got older uh, and it got to this place where they didn't really want to be thrown up into the air much anymore. Now, admittedly, it got a little weird when they became teenagers, all right? So <laughs> I'll give that to them. No, but actually, there was like this time. I remember the first day ever, like whenever I took one of them and I started to throw them up in the air. And they grabbed a hold of my wrists and the smile turned into a frown. And they got this concerned look on their face. And they're like, Daddy, no, don't do that. I don't like that. And I would stop and I would look at them and say, why? And they would go, I'm afraid you're going to drop me. And I, to my knowledge, have never dropped them, like not even once. And I, so I would say, well, have I ever dropped you before? And they would say, well, no. And I would say, well, do you trust me? And they would say, yes. I would say, so can I throw you in the air? And they would say, no. And I think I've had a conversation with God like that a few times. I'm like, God, no, I don't like that. Like, that's out of my comfort zone. That's out of my control. I'm cynical. You just want something from me. And God says, have I, God says, do you, do you, do you, do you trust me? Well, well, yes. Have I ever dropped you? Well, define drop. All right, I, I don't know. Uh, okay, no, no, you haven't. Like, well, can, will you trust me in this area? Well, I. No, I, 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 don't, I, I know I should, but I, I don't really want to. And so maybe that's where some of us are right now. This is where Elijah, this is where Elijah was. Look at verses 8 and 9. Then the Lord said to Elijah, go and live in the village of Zarephath. He tells him, tells him to live there near the city of Sidon. I have instructed a widow there to feed you. All right, so, so this, is, this is an upgrade from the ravens, Okay. So he went to Zarephath. Now, this doesn't sound too unusual to you and me because we're not necessarily all that familiar with the geography. But to Elijah, this would have been incredibly unusual. Maybe even the most unusual thing that God has asked him to do so far. And God's asked him to do some pretty unusual things. And here's the reason why. God has just asked him to go to Zarephath, located in Phoenicia, which was the very heart of Baalism. Which, if you remember, is what got Elijah into this whole mess to begin with. Because he called out the false god of Baal. God says, I want you to go live in his hometown. And that's where somebody will feed you. This would be the equivalent of you and me 
getting on our Colts jerseys, painting our faces blue, getting the crazy hats, all the, you know, the crazy fan stuff, going to the New England Patriots Stadium, walking in, finding their most passionate fans, and asking them to buy us a hot dog. That would be the equivalent of what God is asking Elijah to do. And he mentions this widow here. He says, there's a widow living there, and she's going to feed you. To which I would automatically think, well, man, she must be loaded. Like her late husband's life insurance policy must have been pretty significant. Like she must have more than enough in order to give to Elijah. But that's not the case. As we're going to find out, she's actually in more of a desperate situation than Elijah is. Not only does she have to look after herself, but she's got a young son. And she has no job. She has no options. She has no more resources left. She's actually really, really desperate. And God says, go find her. She'll provide. I'll provide through her enough for the both of you. But they're going to have to learn to trust. Verse 10. As he arrived at the gates of the village, he saw a widow gathering sticks. And he asked her, would you please bring me a little water in a cup? And she, and she did. She was going to, as she was going to get it, he called to her and bring me a bite of bread too. <laughs> That's just funny to me. It's just like, it's like Elijah's got to learn some social skills here because he's like, hey, could you bring me a little water? And she's going to get it. And he's like, oh, and by the way, bring me a bit of bread too. It's like the equivalent of him like stretched out on the couch watching ESPN. Hey, while you're in the kitchen, could you make me a hoagie sandwich, right? And she, she's not going to respond to this too kindly. But she said, I swear, I bet she did, by the Lord, your God, he's your God, not my God, that I don't have, I want you to notice all the reductionary language in this. I don't have a single piece of bread in the house. And I have only a handful of flour left in the jar and a little cooking oil in the bottom of the jug. I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal and then my son and I will die. All right, so she's having a bad day. She's a little emotional. There's, there's nothing about her language that says she thinks she has enough, let alone more than enough. Everything is reduced. She just has a little flour. She just has, she's just picking up a few sticks. This is just one last meal. She's in a desperate, desperate spot. So here's the question that I have, if you haven't already asked it of yourself. Why her? Why would God send Elijah to this town and say, find the widow who's in desperate need? She'll give you some. I bet you there was a lot of people there that had more than enough. I bet you there were some very wealthy business people that had some extra margin that they could have provided Elijah with a meal. Why her? I don't know that I have all the answers to that, but, but let me take a stab at it. I think the reason why God chose her is to make the point to you and me today that at some point in all of our lives, we will be in her position. At some point in our lives, maybe you're there right now, we're going to be the ones using all the reductionary language. We're going to be the ones that feel like we have way too much month at the end of the money. We're going to be the ones that, that feel like it's our savings account that's drying up. It's our 401k that's tanking. It's our job that's been eliminated. And then in those moments, we're going to be tempted to say contentment doesn't apply to me. Generosity doesn't apply to me right now because I'm in desperate, desperate need. God understands. And actually, 
He'll, he'll work through someone else. Someone else will actually step up and, be a need, and, be, and meet the need. I'll be generous when I have enough. And it almost never works that way. A few years ago, my wife and I went on a date. We were, went into a movie theater watching a movie. It was packed out theater. We're sitting in the back, and, it was, and people are all around us. So we're kind of packed into the back. And about halfway through the movie, the sound goes out. And what turned in, what was just a few seconds turned into a couple minutes, and, and we're missing significant pieces of dialogue in the movie, and I'm getting irritated. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, someone should do something. Someone should get out of their seat and go find the management and tell them what's going on. And then here's what I, here's what I did next. I started picking people out in the theater <laughs> that were in a far better position to go and talk to the man. I'm like, man, there's that guy. He appears to be all by himself and he's on the aisle right there down front. Like it would be, he's not going to bother anybody by getting up and just going, why doesn't he get up? Like he should do something. What about that lady over there? She looks like she, she looks like she could get stuff done. Like she should go. And then right then my wife is like, you should really go do something. And I was like, okay, I should really go do something. And so I, here's, here's, here's where I went next. I got up. I started crawling over people. Excuse me, I'm just going to save the day. And, uh, you know, I'm like, <laughs> And I thought people would like pat me on the back and say, way to go and look at that leader. And nobody said anything, right? They were just annoyed I was climbing over them. And then I got down to the door and then the sound came back on. All right. And that's sort of how it works. You know, I think oftentimes it's easy for us, I mean, especially even in a setting like this, just to look around and say, other people are stepping up. Other people will meet the need. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know what anybody gives around here, but I do know that about 20% of us give about 80% of the budget. And that's actually cr- true across the board in any church that you go to. And it's easy for us to step back and say, God knows my heart. I'll give when I'm in a position to. Here's what Paul says, going back to Philippians chapter 4. He says, here's the key. Here's the key to finding contentment. I can do everything. Let's say it with me out loud at all of our campuses. Through Christ. Say it one more time. Through Christ. That's the key. Because you're not doing this in your own power. You're not doing this on your own ability. You're not doing this because it just comes natural to you. He says, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. That he's the one who actually helps me to do it. So when I begin to take God at his word and I begin to take a Sabbath, here's what I'm doing. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me because other people are running. Other people are upgrading. Other people are spending. But I'm going to take a day and cool the jets. And I'm going to invite God into my cycle of work and rest. Uh, here's what the tithe does. is The tithe says, I'm going to actually invite God into my cycle of earning and distributing. And God, I'm actually going to operate through the strength that you provide rather than my own. And Paul says, listen, this is the key to learning how to be content. And I just, I love Paul's ability to be content because the dude was just unshakable. I mean, you look at his life and his ministry, he had all these enemies that basically threatened him and they would come to him. And one time his enemy said, Paul, we're going to throw you into prison. And Paul looked at him and he goes, great, I'll just use it as an opportunity to encourage the guards, maybe lead a few of them to Jesus. And he's like, well, okay, Paul, then in that case, we're going to kill you. And he's like, great, to die is gain. I was like, well, we'll torture you before we kill you. And he's like, okay, I don't consider the sufferings of this present age worth being compared to the glory that will be revealed in me. Well, then we're just going to let you live. Great, to live is Christ. And you're just like, (laughs) Paul, like, we can't shake you, man. 
because contentment is the perspective that you choose regardless of the circumstances that you have. And if you're anything like me, I'm waiting for the circumstances to change, and I go, then I'll have the perspective. And God says, no, the perspective comes first. And this is what, the God, this is what God was trying to even teach the widow. See, the widow thought, if I have enough bread, then I'll share, and it's never been about the bread. Listen, it has never been about the bread. It's about the God of the bread. And so in verses 13 through 14, Elijah said to her, I think he really nails something here. He goes, don't be afraid. That's it. I don't think anybody here is greedy. I think we're just afraid. We're afraid of what might happen. We're afraid if we don't have enough. We're afraid of being in need. Totally natural. He says, please, don't be afraid. Go ahead and do just what you've said, but make a little bread for me first. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was Elijah, I would have said, hey, why don't you make a meal for you and your son? Why don't you guys eat, get everything you need, and then whatever's left over, I'll, I'll have it. That's not what he says. And I don't think Elijah's being selfish. He's trying to teach a principle. <coughs> he says, give it to me first, then use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Now, this is a promise for you and for me. There will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and the crops grow again. It's a promise. Now, could you imagine? A couple things here. This is not health and wealth. This is not name it and claim it. He says, basically, every time you go to the flower jar, what seems like you're just going to be scraping the bottom, you're just going to keep scooping out flour. God will provide just enough. And every time you go to the olive oil, he'll provide just enough because you trusted in him instead of trying to trust in your own ability to control it. And Elijah nails something here that the Bible actually teaches us. He says, I want you to give to me first. This is the concept known in God's word as first fruits. It's found in Proverbs chapter 3. Basically, it's the idea that, that God gets the first of what I earn. And it's a, it's a way for me to trust him. Because here's how I want to operate. I want to be generous. I do. But often, if it's left up to me, here's what I do. I get my paycheck. I pay all the bills. And then I go, okay, well, how much can I set aside? And use for like entertainment, go out to eat and all that. And then God, then I'll give you the leftovers. And God says, no, I actually want you to flip all that around. And I want you to trust me. And I want you to watch me provide the flour and watch me provide the olive oil. Let me give you just three passages that speak to this. The first is Deuteronomy 14. It explains to us why tithing is so important. He says, bring this tithe to the designated place of worship, meaning there's a location. Hey, by the way, God's word separates generosity into three different terms, tithes, offerings, and alms. It isn't just a one thing that we spread out. He goes, a tithe is something that you give to uh, your local church, like the place that you're on mission where you're being spiritually fed and being worked out. An offering is, is anything outside of that. He goes, I want you to take that to the designated place. Doing this will teach you always to fear the Lord your God, calibrating, calibrating contentment into your life. And fear of the Lord is not horror movie fear. This isn't I'm afraid of what God might do to me. This is I'm learning to trust in him. I love what it says in 2 Corinthians uh, about giving, it says, don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, which by the way is why we don't do offering bags and offering plates, because I don't want you to get the wrong idea. Too many people do. We don't want you to give reluctantly or under pressure. 
For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And that word cheerfully just means hilarious. It is a laugh till your sides hurt kind of laughter. And God will generously provide all that you need. And then one more passage, many of you have heard this in Malachi 3, bring all the tithes into the storehouse. There's that concept again of a place. So there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Next slide, please. I will open the windows of heaven for you. And I will pour out a blessing so great that you won't have, here's this word, enough room to take it in. And then God starts talking a little smack. Try it. You, you don't believe me? Put me to the test. Did you know that's the only place in Scripture where God challenges us to test him? Because he knows that our resources are his chief competition for the throne of your heart. And he's not happy about it. And so he calls it out and he says, just trust me in this. See, this is why tithing is not the same thing as paying your taxes. God doesn't need your money, nor does he want your money. But the government does. The government doesn't say, hey, test us in this. Just try paying your taxes and see if your life doesn't work out so much better. Just see if you're not happier and more productive. There's no place on the form every April where you're paying your taxes and, and they say, hey, just a little survey here. Uh, how's your heart with this? Are you giving cheerfully? Because we don't want you to give reluctantly or under pressure. They don't care. They just want your money. God doesn't want your money. God wants something for you, and he wants to calibrate your heart and mind towards contentment. So let me finish out the passage, verse 15 and 16. So she did, as Elijah said, and she and Elijah and her family continued to eat for many days. And there was always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers, just as the Lord had promised through Elijah. And here's the reason why. Contentment is the perspective that you choose regardless of the circumstances that you have. And so can I just ask you, what step do you need to take to begin to apply that truth to your life today? In what area are you too tempted to try to <clears throat> control some things? And can, can I just tell you that this is like the number one issue for me. That my wife actually has the gift of contentment, that she's always at peace around this. So I don't know how many times she's said to me, God will provide, God will take care of us. I'm not worried. And I'm the one that's lagging up the tail end trying to, trying to figure this out. And maybe some of you can join me in just beginning to put our trust in the God of flower jars and olive oils. That will simply say, hey, don't wait till you think you have enough because that line keeps moving up. Hey, why don't you get on this adventure with me today? And I would even say that your spiritual growth will explode when you begin to let God into this area of your life. And maybe it's not even this area. It's the area of your life that you're trying to control the most. Whatever that is, could you just let go? And I know that is super scary. There's a book, by the name, there's a book called Sabbatical Journeys written by a guy named Henry Nowen. And he actually talks about some friends of his that are trapeze artists and he said there's a unique relationship between the flyer and the catcher. And those names are pretty self-explanatory. The, the catcher is the one that stays connected to the rope or to the, the handle. And he's flying through the air. The, the flyer is the one that lets go. And I uh, have never been a trapeze artist before. I know that's surprising. You're probably shocked by looking at me. But I've, I've never done this. 
I would imagine flying through the air with nothing to hold on to is terrifying. And my temptation would be to flail my arms and legs around. My temptation would be to try to catch the catcher. And Henry Nowen said, that's the worst thing that you can do. He said, there have been more accidents with trapeze artists when the flyer freaks out and tries to catch the catcher because it messes, off the, messes up the rhythm. He says, here's what the flyer needs to do. The flyer needs to stay perfectly still, hold out his or her arms, and trust that the catcher will catch him. And maybe that's exactly where some of you are today. In however way God is speaking to you, in whatever way he wants to apply the truth of whatever you heard here into your life from his word, maybe today your simple prayer can just simply be this. God, I trust you. I really do. Help me to trust you. I'm just going to reach out my hands and trust that you'll catch me. And it will always be enough. In fact, he delights in providing more than enough. And so let's do that together. Father, we come to you right now, and I pray both individually and as a church that we would be reminded that contentment is the perspective that we choose, not the circumstances that we have, because circumstances are so unpredictable and they change on us. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to let go of whatever that thing is that we are trying to control God, give us the faith to stop trying to catch the catcher. Give us the faith to just reach out our hands and trust that you'll catch us at just the right time. Build our faith through it, God. Do what only you can. We don't want to miss out on the promise that you've given, the promise that you gave to Elijah and the widow that's applicable and reachable for us today. So God, I pray in just these remaining moments that we have together that we could just be still. And you would meet us right where we are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.